Coming to you live, we'd like to welcome our viewers from the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am um, the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the fabulous public state virtual school in the lovely state of Montana. And I'm joining you this evening from fabulous Missoula, Montana, um, where uh, the weather's actually cooler today, but we have a massive wildfire um, about an hour south of Missoula. The last I heard this morning, I've not seen an update today, um, it is 0% contained with 4,000 4, acres charred and 14 houses already destroyed as part of this process, which is sadly becoming a standard um, uh, a Montana way to have the, the state kind of light on fire during August. So um, it's not too smoky today in Missoula, but we expect it to kind of... Uh, um, charcoal up here pretty soon. And joining me as usual is uh, Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. Good evening, and I am so excited for you with the, with the news of, of your committee, which, of course, we will not talk about in detail, but you can <laughs> at least say that you're moving forward in your process. And I am the yes. Director of Technology at Cassidy School in Oklahoma City and the proud dad of three kids, including one who's college-bound in a couple weeks. And we are not facing wildfires, but it is August and over 100 degrees. And um, today we actually got a uh, bought a van from <clears throat> my parents that has a leather seat. And I realized that I will no longer park that van parked west because the seat was so hot when I got in it today at 430 that I basically could not touch my back to the chair. So that is Oklahoma in August. So I'm thankful we have good air conditioning and Yes, there's lot, lots of uh, of blessings to count. So do you, 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 your family or anybody you know have cabins in the danger zone or any, anything like that? Uh, no, I know quite a few people that live in the broader area, and there is a large evacuation zone. But um, it sounds like, at least as of this morning, they were hopeful that the weather was going to help out today. So it is it is cooler tonight. Um, it feels like there's a little more humidity in the air, which is uh, cool, and no humidity is actually quite dangerous if there's wind. Um, but hopefully um, the weather will help relieve things soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are broadcasting again through a Google Hangout, and for the first time, I'm pretty excited about this because I quickly read a, an article before we we went live about how to activate a secondary channel as this one is. We didn't set up a separate, you know, Gmail, Google account. We just created the EdTech Situation Room YouTube channel as a, as an extra channel. But, um, anyway, we're able to go live directly. So this is going to be archived as a hangout on air that will be on, be on the channel. We want to transfer it. And for those of you that may, not know, we have a website, edtechsr.com, and you can go to edtechsr.com slash links and check out all of the articles, which we will be talking about, and probably some that we don't, because we tend to put more on the plate than we have time to cover in an hour show. But you can access all of our archived audio as well as video from that website and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or other places like that. So... You want to kick us off with one of your first articles tonight, Jason? Sure. Uh, let me start with a really interesting article that was actually released today, and uh, it was a busy day today, and despite that, this article caught my eye too much so that I read the whole thing, but um, CNET has a really excellent article today uh, called Seeking Shelter with Phones in Hand, Refugees Stranded in Greece, Tap Underground Networks to Find uh, Safe Havens, and um, one of the things that is is always of interest to me is how technology can 
um, you know, impact situations that might have been extremely dire um, previous to now, but technology adds a new twist to things to connect people in different and nuanced ways. And uh, this particular article talks about, um, first of all, um, the prevalence of cell phones amongst refugees in Greece. And, of course, Greece, uh, as part of the refugee crisis in Europe, took the brunt of a lot of the especially later arriving refugees. And also, refugees have been labeled by other countries as, for whatever reason, legitimately or not dangerous. And so um, there are a lot of folks uh, hanging out in, in Greece uh, from other areas, the broader Middle East, in some cases Syria, and um, it, the experience is a bit different because um, some of these folks, not all of them, but some of them have access to cellular telephones. Um, of course, Europe works a little differently than the United States does. And so the culture of buying cheap cell phones and then daily use SIM cards or pay-as-you-go SIM cards is a lot more common in Europe than it is in the United States. And so it's legitimate that you could have a cell phone that you purchased relatively expensively or perhaps uh, picked up off someone used, buy a SIM card, um, and then uh, do things with that, uh, connect with others, make phone calls, etc. Um, what came to mind here was a couple things. First, that many refugees were using these devices as a means of uh, supporting networks, connecting with other refugees in the area, in some cases making connections that were able to share resources or send people in different directions. Um, a lot of the refugee services in Greece are digitally applied for. Um, they were talking about uh, some of the strategies which worked and didn't work. For example, for a while, applying for refugee status required that you schedule an appointment via Skype um, to connect with a refugee specialist that could help you fill out the paperwork. That was all well and good, but they didn't have nearly enough staffing so the networks quickly became overwhelmed with hundreds of people calling and getting effectively a busy signal. And, uh, you know, if you hang up and try again, that congests the network even more. And then, of course, uh, free Wi-Fi is a premium, um, uh, more in Europe than it is in the United States. And as it turns out, um, Wi-Fi is not as available as as you might think it in uh, even a, a, a bigger city in the United States where free Wi-Fi tends to be kind of a, um, a rite of passage of commerce, whereas in Greece, it's not the case at all. And so you can buy sometimes a one-day SIM card with unlimited data for $5 American, but that's an extraordinary amount of money for someone that is uh, a refugee in Greece. And so um, there's probably not a, less, a lot of lessons for schools here other than attention social studies teachers. This is a great first day article to share with your students as you're returning back to school to talk about the, the modern implications of things like technology as it relates to um, uh, uh, social studies topics. But it's always important to remember that in you know, the United States, where we seem to be a bit obsessed with the, the occasional trivial as it regards technology, uh, witness our obsession the last few episodes with Pokemon Go, technology does have a real impact on our lives for certain, but certainly in the lives of folks, these technology as a critical tool for communication with others. Absolutely. Um, I, I have, we talked a little bit about virtual reality and shared some links last time. Uh, and, and I tuned in to watch our president right after our last show, you know, give his presentation. And I was able to, you know, jump, it was jumping around between these different cameras and, and panning around. Uh, 
to date, my favorite educational application of that um, technology has been a, a video called in a movie. It's a documentary by the United Nations and and another group um, called Clouds Over Sidra, and it's about Syrian refugees and trying to to build empathy in the part of students and others for folks that are in in refugee situations. And I think through that and some other related articles, it it's amazing what cell phones can do for, you know, the ability of, of, of refugees to stay in touch. Also, I'm thinking about natural disasters, you know, um, whether it's an earthquake or, uh, you know, maybe even wildfire thing, things that are happening to large numbers of folks, you know, cell phones and the ability to, to, to stay in touch has really made a huge difference to where, you know, somebody might have been out of touch for, for weeks or months. Now it can be, you know, days or, or even hours. So, um, you know, the rel, I guess I would say the rel, the educational connection is the, the, the huge relevance and importance of digital devices and not ignoring digital devices in the classroom and pretending like, you know, if we simply, you know, do our traditional learning and, and prepare students to be critical thinkers. And even if we think about the, the most idealistic traditional education, somehow that we're fully doing our job if we just ignore technology and don't talk about the ways in which we, you know, n- need to use it and, and navigate it. There, there certainly are hazards, but, you know, in the, in the last uh, a couple of weeks, I've, I've had some conversations with folks along these lines. And so anyway, I'm just thinking about how vital it is and how critical it is that we don't just assume that the world is full of digital natives who all know how to use these devices and we don't need to do anything about it in school to help equip folks with the skills and and knowledge to, you know, move out into the world. So, right. Well, and then I will also mention, I did not share the link this time because I want uh, to uh, look at the study in a little more detail, but my wife shared with me a study this morning that suggested that there is uh, another digital divide growing in the way we're applying technology in the United States, uh, in this case, dealing with um, uh, rich versus poor in regards to what the access to technology is, obviously, but what is happening on that technology, whereas those that are more affluent tend to access information resources and engage with others in social media. On the other side of, 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 of the coin, those with less means um, tend to be focused more on games and interactions in that way. And I would say that, that and one of the reasons why I wanted some time to, to d- dig into the studies, I think there's a risk by making broad pronouncements there about what that might be about or what to do about that. But it does keep a reaffirming for me what we argue almost every week, that you need to be having more experiences in your classrooms where students can practice technology use in a low-risk uh, environment so that when things become higher-risk environments, they're ready to go. And that's absolutely an obligation of school. And I, I think that's true of all students. But if you have some evidence that that uh, so any subset of your students may need more access to those experiences, the classroom is an excellent place to do that. Definitely. In fact, there's an article I didn't – I was going to drop this one in and, and – uh... I probably should if I'm going to mention it, but, uh, it was talk, it was talking, the article is talking about incomes and, and folks who have laptops in the home and who don't. And anyway, these are, these are things that are 
dropped around in conversations about digital divides. Um, my first article, and I went ahead and just moved this up on the list. So if you want to follow along with the links, you can go to ed- edtechsr.com slash links. Uh, was an article today from Ars Technica. New attacks steal social security numbers, email addresses, and more from HTTPS pages. And <laughs> we have had this summer at school um, more security incidents involving Mac users than we, we ever have before uh, because basically we've had zero. I mean, Macs have just not been prone to malware and to, to viruses and things like that. Um, this particular article talks about a vulnerability that, that came out at Black Hat, the uh, notorious conference in Las Vegas where where hackers come together and, and share their, their bags of tricks, but also help raise our awareness about you know, how we need to be safer. And uh, this particular hack, which will hopefully, you know, be patched as these things, you know, get patched on on folks who are upgrading with their security, um, allows the website to basically suck things out of your browser by just having essentially a widget or an uh, like an iframe um, that is somehow able to query, I guess, things that have that have been cached or saved. And I don't, I, reading the article, I don't know for sure if it is just a, a Windows vulnerability. That's probably actually a pretty significant thing to reassure people or whatever. But, um, you know, thinking about where we go in digital footprints and then how we get infected. I mean, literally, I'm, I'm not, not going to name any names to call people out. But, you know, I've had several faculty um, contact us with, as a technology department in a panic uh, because of a, a flashing thing that, that appears on their screen. Uh, and they were, afraid, you know, afraid their system has been hijacked. The most egregious uh, hack was we think someone who, when they clicked update on their iOS device, really they were not clicking to, in the update section. It was a pop-up. Um, and it resulted in over $2,000 in charges to their iTunes account. I don't know exactly how a hacker does that. If they have their own wow. apps that they say, hey, repeatedly buy my in-app purchase. I haven't gotten that much detail. They did get it cleaned up with Apple, and it's taken care of. Uh, but she's very concerned about iOS updates. And having heard the story, I'm, I, I feel pretty confident that she wasn't clicking the iOS update button. You know, it was a, a pop-up that was being seen somewhere else. Right. So this is, again, a recurring mantra that we are perhaps, you know, boring our, our viewers about and, and, and losing folks because they just say, they keep saying the same thing about security. But anyway, wearing the IT director hat, I, as I've mentioned before, I feel responsible for, for bringing this kind of news. It's like you're the, the prophet of the bad, you know, the bad news, but <clears throat> trying to encourage everybody to be more secure. And and the, the teacher who had the $2,000 hack also, I, I visited with her about two-step security because that's something you, you can do to protect your Apple ID and your Google account. We don't have it turned on on the school account, but, you know, she was very hesitant. Well, that'll be tough and that'll be cumbersome and saying, well, how was yes. that? How was that two thousand dollar hack? You know, I mean, we we um, I think I'm on the edge of of probably fully implementing <laughs> implementing the password scenario, which you know is that that I all of us need to be using different uh, complex passwords on every single website, and right. and I'll, I'll I'll admit and hopefully not open myself up to a hack to the thousands of viewers that I'm sure are hang, hanging on our every word. You know, there are some places that I use the same password, so. Right. Anyway, that was that caught my attention and definitely uh, you know, follows along on on other themes that we've talked about before regarding security from a personal standpoint as well as a school standpoint. Great. Thanks, Wes. And I'd add one other note about 
the the notion of for those of you that are tech savvy in the world, um, you owe it to your friends and family to help serve as that uh, kind of digital Sherpa uh, to uh, help folks understand what what hacks are and help them battle it. And and I'll say even something from a um, uh, kind of a someone who supports a lot of members of my family. You know, you also have to work hard to not be intimidating when you do that too. You know, don't judge people for sometimes mistakes that they make. Ask them to ask you when they're confused about those pieces and help them build a better uh, uh, kind of judgment perspective related to 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 those pieces because it's there is a real issue and the 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 attacks are only going to increase in number and complexity over time. So it's important to be ready for those things. I I found the article. It's actually I'd put this other one in there, and this is a little old. This is November 2015. <clears throat> the CNN article is titled "Teens Spend a Mind-Boggling Nine Hours a Day Using Social Media." But the quote that got my attention was: "54 percent of teens in houses making less than 35,000 a year have a laptop in the home, versus 92 percent of teens in households making more than 100,000." So you know, a clear digital divide that we have yep. in terms of of access and. Um, and the things that come with access, both positive and negative. Okay, next, um, Recode reports that in a recent study by Tech Pinions, um, there was a, uh, a study apparently done that says that um, uh, when there's a collaborative um, uh, paper, millennials prefer to use Google Docs, which I'm sure is not a surprise to anyone listening to this podcast. But the more surprising statistic is when they are working on something by themselves, only 12% of millennials defer to Google Docs. And for those projects, they move back to the desktop Word application. And honestly, this statistic floored me because I wouldn't have guessed it to be true. And one of the reasons why that's the case is because, to be honest, I don't open Word unless I absolutely have to. There are good reasons to still open Excel for me. There are good reasons to open PowerPoint, in my opinion, although that's becoming less and less now that Google Slides is becoming more functional and easier to create nice, beautiful, simple slides. But uh, the statistic there is the fact that millennials do go back and forth um, uh, pretty easily uh, between the desktop app and the web-based app. And if given a choice that where collaboration is not required, they would defer back to the desktop app. So uh, it certainly doesn't uh, mimic my experience, but now that I think about it, I rarely support students in context of my day job at the Digital Academy that are using Google Docs as an individual user unless they absolutely have to. More of our students would prefer to use WordPad on an old version of Windows than see Google Docs as an, a standalone word processor. What are your thoughts about this, Wes? You know, we've got faculty uh, that remain committed to Microsoft Word and really want to keep students in Word uh, in part because of, you know, thinking about theses and maybe dissertations or just formal college writing that is going to require uh, the use of, you know, special tools for, for MLA or Turabian or what, what APA, what, whatever kinds of formatting that they're doing. It's a, it's an important thing to be able to move between environments. Uh, I think that 
it's important for us not to just be stuck in one mode and that so this is what we've used and somehow having it in our mind that I mean, you know it still exists that the, the world uses words so that's the only thing that we should be using and and for instance you know a chromebook is useless to me because we can't run word on it um but I, i'm interested in in what you know what schools are doing as far as in hel- helping teach the use of the tool and I don't know, maybe it's something we should be tracking at our school. I mean, we're talking, we're, we've been talking about metrics for, for use and, you know, getting, getting beyond the, how many times has the carp been checked out and the lab, you know, the lab been used, but, but what are we doing? And uh, especially as we're, I think it's starting our fifth year as a Google apps campus, you know, it would be pretty interesting to, to take a look at some things in terms of the self-selected use of the tool, not just when a teacher assigns and says, Hey, I want you right. to do this, in this environment. Um, I think it's still transformative to use a collaborative Google document to have teachers work on a document together, you know, in a meeting. Right. We did that with a free open source program called Etherpad. It runs, we used a website called TitanPad that hosts it. I like it because it gives everybody their own color. It has a separate spot over on the side where you can have a, a sort of off topic chat. Um, and it has a play button so you can play back the entire creation of the document and see how it was built and who created it, you know, and have a visibility to the interaction that has happened that you simply don't have with, with really any other tool, even with Google Docs and revision history, there's not a play button that lets everybody, you know, be in a different color and play back. So just last week in an iPad media camp, I led uh, showing that, I mean, that led to good conversations about, well, why would we use this, you know, versus Google Docs? But <clears throat> I still don't see that, in, at least in my environment as quote normal where we're seeing the collaborative power of we're on the same document at the same time looking at this work together and editing it you know now and so anyway i I think that we're we're still um i don't know what the right word of saying this but we're we're still the the inheriting the, the world of the past or we're still, you know, it's baby duck syndrome where we, we have tools that we're comfortable with. They've been imprinted on us and we, we still tend to, to gravitate to those. So I think it's incumbent upon librarians and media specialists upon, you know, technology coaches and, and those of us involved in technology support to continue to encourage folks to step beyond their own experience, to see the transformative power of tools that allow us to do things we couldn't do before and right. I, I really got this from Ben Wilkoff at Den- in Denver at the Google Summit last summer, you know, where he was just using that for his entire breakout session at the conference, but building a document together on the screen as we had conversations with teachers. And I've, I've done a lot of that, but having, you know, 50 teachers together, building that document together, it was it, it was a simple idea, but it was a powerful idea. It made an impact on me as somebody who's used a lot of interactive writing tools. And I think that same kind of experience, you know, can happen for, for the, any of our next staff meetings when, when we have those. So. Right. Well, and a couple thoughts broadly about the notion of, of, of adopting down to a single tool. Um, I'm obviously not exclusively on Google Docs. and I have some specific reasons for that. By the way, I am writing my dissertation on Google Docs. So for, uh, and I, I don't, I, I probably, I'll, I'll probably end up writing a blog post about this and I'm going to share a tool tonight in the geek of the week that's really allowed me to transform the way I do citations. But, 
Um, I love it. Like the fact that, and, and as, as you know, Wes and, and I, our, our loyal listener knows I are, or I really have a lot of laptops because I like going from laptop to laptop to laptop. And part of what allows me to do that is that I can sign into my Google account and, um, get access to my document anywhere. And, and literally as I've worked on my dissertation in the last, um, well, I, I guess the writing component 12 weeks, I've been able to go in and out of the document no matter what computer I'm sitting at with all my work there. But tech savvy users really aren't stuck on one tool. And in fact, more often than not, and in fact, that's, um, that's part of the point that I, I think that the, the, the study um, was making is that uh, tech savvy folks tend to pick the tools right to the job every time. It's the same reason why that um, although I am a Chrome user, I often have Firefox and Safari in the Mac open or Edge browser on Windows 10 because there are some sites that work better in other browsers. And rather being frustrated by that, I'll effortlessly move in and out of different browsers uh, because it, it, it fits the way I'm working. And I think most tech-savvy users tend to be a little more uh, multi-platform in the way they approach things. And I think we should teach that to students, too, that, you know, that there is no really one right way to do this. Um, and sometimes student learning that they're doing it the wrong way is is quite illustrative. Um, uh, our, our, my, my most recent experience with that is, again, supporting students as part of the Digital Academy. We have had a student that attempted to do something that we would advise against, which is to complete assignments um, on a cell phone. Um, it's one thing to access things to read and watch. That's quite uh, usable on a cell phone. But if you're constructing actual documents, um, that's going to become tiresome to you, even if you have you know, Microsoft Word on, on cell phones. is really great now. Google Docs has, has always been really great on cell phones. Um, but it's just not going to be a great user experience. And so, you know, locking students into one platform, I think, also comes with disadvantages. Um, when administrators ask me the question, should I buy iPads or Chromebooks or laptops? I say yes. Um, you know, like you really need all three, I think, and not uh, three for every student. But if you have some Chromebooks and some iPads and some laptops and maybe a couple of throwaway um uh, digital cameras and, and, you know, a diversity of devices is really going to allow you to be the most flexible. I understand districts that, you know, standardize on Chromebooks, for example, but ideally it's all devices that provide that perspective. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. Yep. And I've, uh, again, I've, I won't disclose, disclose names, but I've had some interesting discussions, uh, recently about those, those topics. And, um, it's we we tend to fall into our 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 one one size fits all. Let's find the tool for everybody, you know, kind of trap. And I think um, as we're seeing the continued commoditization of devices and the elevation of capabilities, uh, I was just listening to the Committed podcast, one of my favorite weekly tech show podcasts, and they were talking about this that you know it's just going to continue to put pressure on Apple as far as the prices that they're charging, and it also um, you know, begs questions about BYOD and, and whether or not we need to say things like everybody has to have this. Right. Um, I will say, and I was trying to, to pull it up, um, Scrivener is a, a wonderful, yeah. powerful tool that I've used for writing that has just been on the uh, iOS and Windows platforms and now has come to iOS. And so, uh, you know, we've heard these kind of outlier stories about you know, woman in Japan writes entire novel on cell phone, you know, commuting to work for, you know, months on the train or something like that. Um, yeah, I think that that we need to. Um, 
well, it it also thinking about what we're doing and and you know the quality of what we're doing. I don't know. I, I'm still a I'm still not a complete fan of saying yeah, just bring your device, whatever it is, because because it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. I mean, if you're showing up with your Kindle, you know, even if it's your Kindle <laughs> Fire, or right. you're showing up with your you know your cell phone, and and we're going to try to to do some some uh, intensive writing, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge. So anyway, I think it's, um, it, it would be interesting to see how, how different IT departments are navigating that idea. I remember the start of the Web 2.0 revolution. You know, we had some, I was in Missouri, yeah. we had some sessions on what do you support and how many things and, you know, departments that would say, these are the only tools that we're going to let you use for wikis because right. we just, we can't know them all. Um I don't know. It's sort of, I don't know if there's a dilemma. I don't know a word for that. The pioneer dilemma, you know, you can have may, perhaps too many people trying too many different things. Right. Uh, and, 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 and it's important to, to be looking at the literacy skills that we're developing and how we cultivate those. And then how we're sending students forward with, right. with those kinds of skills. So anyway, we're having those kind of conversations at, at school and hopefully we'll, you know, get some faculty input on those kind of things because um, we need to be at a point where it's less haphazard and it's not just pioneers trying different tools, you know, but there's some core competencies that we're identifying and and we're supporting environments for for using certain things for collaboration and, you know, and then then students are coming to teachers more equipped with the knowledge and ability to use these tools so we're not having to teach the tools. We're having to, you know, we're getting to discuss the ideas and, and just, and use them, you know, much like air or water in the in the atmosphere or the or the pool. We don't we don't want to be teaching about the air. We want to just be breathing it and then having right. a conversation about something else. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Well, where'd you next? Let's see. Um, I was flipping around between my channels here and, and lost my spot. Uh, let's talk about. Um, Let's talk about the DNA revolution. Have have you before I talk about the article? Have have you read much or or gotten in much to genomics and and talking about DNA sequencing and any of that that stuff? I've casually read about it. Yeah, well, I um, this is an article from National Geographic. Uh, my a lifetime member of the of the of the society, thanks to my uh, alma mater and. Anyway, just really enjoy their articles. It, it's always amazing on the iPad, especially how how it elevates the bar of, of what's possible with journalism. Yes. Um, but this is an article called How the DNA Revolution is Changing Us. And it's talking about these do-it-yourself kits. There's one called CRISPR, uh, which you can literally just order online and you can you can start altering the DNA of uh, of some different things. We're not talking about you know, complex organisms with the, 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 the DIY thing. But, you know, for instance, we're hearing about the Zika virus. And so there is potential for scientists to be able to change some of the sequence of, of DNA in these uh, mosquitoes and then, you know, put those into the population so that the progeny of, of today's mosquitoes are not going to have that Zika virus and, the world would be saved from you know this this terrible this terrible virus. Um, the immediacy of how this is real. I mean that this is not science fiction. I mean you can freaking literally order a kit for I don't know it's like a hundred or hundred fifty bucks or something. I mean it's not like thousands of dollars um, to to do some of this. We've we've always and I say always we've historically done things with genetic manipulation. Uh, think about dogs and how relatively quickly in history. You know, dog breeds, modern dog breeds um, happened. I'm, and I'm fascinated by that. And I'm not a biologist or a geneticist. 
but um, there is a book that I listened to, and my out my outboard brain, my device, uh, has my my past article. So it's this is a book called The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross, and I probably had that as a geek of the week during one of our early episodes. But anyway, genomics is one of the big topics that he that he says is is going to be a huge industry of the future, and uh, there's going, there are going to be issues and things that, that we potentially will face uh, in terms of uh, our own health and the health of, of family members, um, certainly those that are considering, you know, having children and, and things like that. But um, I don't know. It's something we need to we need to find ways to bring these things to the attention of, of our kids, like being involved in genomics and that whole industry of the future is going to involve a sizable high school commitment probably to science and to chemistry and probably some math and you know in order to be set up to move into that area you're you're going to you're going to need to to be moving in that direction in, in high school so i don't right. know it's a pretty amazing article um national geographic always blows my mind and i think there's there there are some this last this last week at the ipad media camp was Awesome. Well, maybe it was the week before, and I already said this. We had a we had a truck driver, you know, guy who teaches truck driving. We had a a, a guy who who teaches culinary skills and knife skills. We had a bunch of nurses. We had a lot of vocational, you know, high school folks, uh, which was really cool. And and they're, they, they, this group was very oriented towards careers. And I don't know the degree to which we're we're oriented in that way outside of our our tech centers and you know, our schools that, that have nursing programs and, and have these other kinds of, you know, career path opportunities. Um, and I'm thinking about that for my own kids too. How do I, we're not m- medical doctors. My wife and I are, are not nurses. We don't have that kind of a background. Um, thankfully our son has enjoyed chemistry a lot and, and our daughter is a junior and she's taken her second chemistry class. So, you know, I'm, I've been visiting lately with people about job shadowing opportunities or how, you know, how do you, how do you help kids learn about those pathways and then get excited about it to think about pursuing it as a path. So if you're not aware of genomics and not, you know, aware of, of what's going on with DNA sequencing, again, that'd be an exciting sort of thing to, to talk about at school because there's a lot of, of ethical sides to this. Right. It's not just a, Oh, look at the technology and how cool it is. There's also the, wow, is this something we should do? And where is the line, if there is a line, to the manipulation that we should do and the unintended consequences that can happen? Because rest assured, you know, there are places, and they have some pictures of, of dogs in China, I think, that they've, like, doubled the muscle mass of these beagles or something. They're, like, very, you know... Arnold, Arnold Beagles, you know, I don't know. That that seems like a little bit sur- superfluous, and okay, that that that's just kind of funny, but it it it's not um, <laughs> not quite as serious as when we think about you know playing with the human genome and and what we might do or what people or militaries you know or secret agencies might be right. contemplating and doing now too. So one of the shout out, um, if you haven't. It's worth going to your iPad and buying just even a single issue of Natural Geographic um, to see uh, how wonderful that application is. Uh, and, and it really takes uh, um, the magazine, the traditional magazine, and elevates it quite uh, quite dramatically to something very different and wonderful. And they, in my mind, were the, one of the first uh, traditional publications to really do that. So that's an excellent resource that if you haven't had the chance to experience on a beautiful iPad screen, now is the time to do it. 
And the last shout out I'd say about that is people like Alec Ross, who wrote this Industries of the Future book, um, I have put a bunch of what I would call STEM innovation folks on Twitter uh, into a Twitter list, and I'll add that. And absolutely one of my favorite things to have on Flipboard, uh, the, the social media and news app that every tablet and smartphone user, you know, should, should be using, which is free, um, is this Twitter list. And, and so whenever I'm wanting a little sip of, of innovation for, for STEM type issues, that's the Twitter list that I go to. And, uh, it's a, uh, it, it's an amazing day, right? Being able to have access to these high, high quality, traditionally published articles like National Geographic, and then you know being able to to tap into individuals that just are passionate about these topics and wanting to share about them, makes for some very exciting reading and some you know the power of the power of connected learning. Absolutely. Um, I shared a link this week uh, that is a review of the new Amazon uh, low-end Amazon Kindle at CNET. Um, it's basically it's still low-end Kindle. It's still not bad. Um, it's still you know well under a hundred dollars. And I mentioned this this week uh, not just because um, you know Kindle still remains one of the greatest, cheapest platforms for getting a good quality ebook reader. But I want to talk a little bit about the, the status of ebooks in 2016. And I still remember uh, very well in, I can't remember if it was 2010 or 2011, maybe it was a little earlier, 2009. But there was a one year at the Consumer Electronics Show, CES in Las Vegas, where it was ebook mania and that hundreds of manufacturers were rushing to release ebooks or ebook readers and uh, there was going to be cheap ebook readers and obviously expensive ebook readers. And for those of you that are unaware of the history of the Kindle, uh, the first generation of Kindle included a, an ebook reader and then a super large ebook reader that was a little larger than the size of a traditional piece of notebook paper. Uh, that was a wonderful screen and a great user experience to, to read PDFs and other uh, formatted documents. And here we are in 2016, and I have to say I use my Kindle daily. Um, it's, it's how I read um, most of the formal, long-form uh, fiction and nonfiction that I read. Um, but um, I don't read newspapers on it, even though I uh, am able to access the New York Times on my Kindle. And then I'm always super interested in the fact that you know everyone's running around talking about how ebooks could be the future uh, to fix things like textbooks. And yet, um, interesting study earlier this year that 92% of uh, college students prefer print books to ebooks. And I'll put that link in the show notes. It's from the LA Times. Um, the ebook itself seems to be of still fairly limited um, uh, adoption when it comes to first younger folks. And second, a lot of really super readers uh, seem to also prefer the paper book. So I guess probably to start with, Wes, are you an ebook reader? I am now, I am a little bit, but I'm really an audible audio consumer. I mean, that is the absolute number one way I consume long form literature, um, mostly nonfiction, but some fiction. Um, when I, when I went camping with the family this summer, you know, there's a book, I don't know who recommended it. It's called The White Plague and it's actually a, uh, interesting, uh, bioterror story of somebody who concocts a a weapon that kills women. And anyway, I'm about halfway through it. But honestly, I haven't. I don't know how much I've I've even cracked it since we've been back from vacation. So I do read uh, a lot electronically, but it tends to be more 
you know, short sips and articles from different places, Flipboard being one of my, my main sources. And um, it's, it's about Audible. Even though my commute has gone from, from basically 30 minutes one way to seven minutes, uh, you know, our, our, our daughter goes down to the theater, you know, about half, uh, 30 minutes downtown. Uh, I find myself being able to, not all the time, every, every moment, but a lot of time in the car, you know, flipping on a book and, and finishing books. So I'm an audible consumer, but, but you are, you're a Kindle reader, right? I mean, you're, you're using your Kindle constantly. So that's pretty, how long is, when did that habit take, take hold? Um, I first bought a Kindle. It would have been 2010. And my, my original reason why the Kindle was so attractive to me was not necessarily new books, although I do have a large collection now that I share with a friend, actually, um, that were uh, uh, related according to Amazon, and um, we've long time shared an account, and so we, we buy a lot of things that we share and loan to one another, but um, I originally was interested in the Kindle as a means to downloading classic books um, that were in the public domain. And so I read a lot of Jane Austen's work that way, uh, for example, that I had read some of it in college and high school and wanted to jump back into it and review some of those books again. And that just seemed to be the easiest, cheapest way to do that. Um, but since then, there, there's two things that I really like that, that make it a, a compelling platform for me. The first one is I do like the fact that there's so much Particularly, I'm, I'm a science fiction reader. I'm not a, not a traditional science fiction reader. I don't like a lot of fantasy stuff. Um, and I tend to focus on some particular themes in science fiction. Um, I mentioned this and I sound like I'm kind of a dork, but I like post-apocalyptic fiction, as it turns out. So, um, uh, I, I as, like- as do many folks. And actually, the psychological explanation for that can be pretty fascinating of why yeah. that's taken hold in our society. Yeah. Um, so apparently my, my paranoia, uh, runs supreme in my, my, uh, uh, fiction choices, but a lot of that literature and one of the, the most heartwarming stories I heard when Amazon first started, uh, allowing people to publish direct to Kindle as part of their uh, digital publishing program was that all these science fiction writers from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that had published uh, small distribution books, um, in some cases hundreds or thousands of editions. They rarely sold outside of trade shows and science fiction fairs. Um, and of course, they, unlike a lot of other authors that had accidentally signed away their digital rights, uh, when they signed book contracts, most of the science fiction presses didn't care. I mean, they signed really informal contracts, and basically once we print these thousand books and get our profit out of it, we don't care about your book anymore, so keep it. And so all these, uh, in some cases, really well-known cult figures in science fiction started publishing their books on the Kindle platform, and some of them were bringing in, in some cases, thousands of dollars a month in royalties as they started getting a cult following again. And um, you know, the notion of the long tail, that uh, the availability of um, products uh, to bigger audiences allows you to serve smaller uh, niches while still turning a profit that's alive and well in the Amazon book world. But I think that's an amazing thing. Um, the second thing that is really great is I do read quite a few books that don't, that weren't, were never going to get published, that they were not ready for prime time. Some cases, short stories are great that way. Um, a lot of, of works from educational technology folks never made it to a formal printing press, and yet I can buy those books on the Kindle platform. Um, in some cases, you know, not very expensively, uh, two, three dollars a book and call it good. 
Um, I'm also super interested um, in the fact that ebooks go on sale all the time. Like a lot of bestsellers will have, you know, a week where it goes from $9.99 or $12.99 to, to $0.99 cents for a couple of days. And so I can, you know, kind of stock up. And uh, as a traveler, nothing beats the Kindle. Um, you know, you can carry a thousand books with you and in a space just a, a little bit larger than your, your smartphone. So something else that, that fascinates me, and I use this as an excuse to buy, was before the Kindle Paperwhite or whatever came out, so this doesn't have backlighting. But my, my now late friend, Bob Sprankle, uh, really felt that the Kindle just didn't have the digital distraction that the iPad yeah, and here. other tablets offer. And I think that is really a fascinating thing. Um, I had a conversation this week with one of our high school teachers who wants to order and buy clickers. And of course I was suggesting and our librarian was two different alternatives that, that students can use their devices and, uh, and learned actually we have our, our smart board license. It's good for two, you know, two more years. And, uh, there's a built in tool now with smart board software that, that lets students use their device. You don't have to buy the smart responders, which I didn't know. But, you know, the, this, this faculty member or teacher is concerned about, you know, kids being on social media and doing other things. So what is your experience with the Kindle been? Has that been a significant benefit, Jason, that you're not tempted to jump over to Twitter or jump over to, to Facebook or something else like that? Yeah, that's, that's very legitimate for me. And in fact, um, as, and I think we may have talked about this in a past episode, something that I've been very committed to in the last, uh, particularly year or so. And in fact, I, I, I teach a really great session about this at conferences. Um, and by the way, you can hire me, knifer.com, to teach something in your district. Um, that, uh, one of the things that I've been really focused on is making meaningful decisions about when technology should be around and when it shouldn't be. And so mm-hmm. I, work really hard. I'm not great at it. And if my wife were here, she would probably roll her eyes at me because she knows that I struggle with this. But I don't want cell phones in my bedroom. Um, I want there to be no technology other than a paper book and maybe a Kindle in my room. And that's one of the reasons why is that mm. if there is a browser on the Kindle. It, it's awful and not very useful. And, you know, like there's a thousand reasons why you could say that, you know, having it on a, a, a more functional device would be great, looking stuff up, going to the Wikipedia, um, yada, yada, yada. But for my trashy, um, um, you know, uh, EMP or post EMP, no electricity world, uh, science fiction, uh, apocalyptic novel. I know what an EMP is. So now I can just enjoy society falling apart because there's no electricity. So like, I, th- I think that's a very important point. Okay. I have to ask you this and we're going to kind of go down a, a, perhaps a rabbit hole with it. We've got, we've got about 10 minutes left, so we won't do this long, but have you read lights out by Ted Koppel? Are you familiar with this? Uh, I'm not. Yes. So Ted Koppel has a book called Lights Out. And of course, Ted Koppel, one of the probably most recognized authority anchors of, of, um, you know, evening news. And this book is about the huge risk that we, we now have and that we are just living under for cyber attack and the, um, opportunities that nefarious parties, whether they be, um, ones that are not nation states or they are nation states, you know, have to potentially cripple the United States and the world with cyber attacks. So, uh, and that would specifically hit our electrical grid. Um, I got this for my parents in part because they tell a story. There, there are these folks that are called preppers. And like back in the, the Y2K time, you know, with folks think, thinking that we're, the world was going to end because we weren't ready, ready for uh, the year 2000. Um, 
there was a there's a really great story about a guy who lives outside of Powell, Wyoming, where my dad grew up. Anyway, this was so disturbing, my parents had to stop listening to it. So I gave that to him. And it is one of those things that just I don't know. I mean, my grandmother in her later years watched CNN constantly and listened to Art Bell back in the day. And, you know, it's when you get when you when you're going to turn on a constant news stream of of media, as well as folks that are are rather conspiratorial about things, you can certainly you know, depress yourself quite a bit. But anyway, that's that might be something to check out. And there's a yeah. book that is a novel that meant that was mentioned several times in this, which is a novel about cyber attack and that kind of stuff. So on a personal note, we should all be prepared for short term emergencies, right? Whether it's a, uh, you know, blackout caused by ice in, 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 in the middle of the winter or, you know, we have some some other kind of natural disaster, tornadoes, things like that that hit. Um it's a lot more difficult to prepare for something that would last weeks or months. And um, I'm not wanting to depress people or, or send, send anybody, you know, to a therapist because they've, they've read one of the books that we recommended. But anyway, it's uh, po- post-apocalyptic literature is uh, well, let's, we'll, we'll have to take that on as a topic because our, the chair of our English department, who's now our, the head of our upper school, he's teaching a whole course again this year uh, with post-apocalyptic literature for high school students. It's the seminar. So I'll, I'll get his book list. And we had a pretty fascinating discussion uh, in April when we drove down to San Antonio to an, an arts festival together about, you know, why is it that so many people are into that genre and zombie movies? And I'll have to go back and maybe even ask him about it because he had some theories and I'm sure you probably have some theories too, but we don't have to pursue that for the rest of the podcast if you don't want to. Um, and I would also note that I went to that, uh, the, the couple book on Amazon and one of the recommended books, people also bought the book I'm currently reading about an EMP. So that's what, what, the, what, what, what book is that? What's the it's name? Called, it's called One Second After. It's okay. about, about yeah. a, a town in the Carolinas that yeah. uh, basically has, it happens, no connection with the outside, cars all die, no electricity, no communication. And it's, I mean, I, and, and I, I, I know of an EMP. It's not a, an uncommon concept for me. Part of it was being a debater. Uh, oh, uh, that, new scenarios would yeah, always be what you wanted yeah, to go for. So. Yeah, an impact scenario that involves uh, the end of all electricity uh, temporarily. Uh, I do know that um, from, from my understanding of the scientific nature of it, that that particular book overplayed a bit uh, how it would probably work. Like it was a, a little more... Um, uh, uh, it wouldn't be as 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 uh, bad as the scenario suggested, but it did highlight, I think, quite correctly how reliant we are um, on. And I'm going to use the word technology here. And again, and that's another rabbit hole for us to talk about. But uh, you know, like our food it needs refrigeration, and our medicines are never stockpiled. They're always they always come in to the pharmacy, you know, twice a week by truck, and you know, lots of interesting pieces there. But uh, yeah, yeah, certainly an interesting topic. Well, let's, we'll we'll tackle that tackle that uh, at, at some greater length possibly down the road. So yep, I'll I'll great. close that that thought by saying perhaps down the road uh, if when we end up moving. I mean, I've I've thought with solar solar power and solar energy and our son wanting to be an engineer, you know, it'd be what a fun maker project to to put solar panels on our house and you know think about going off of the grid. That's definitely beyond my my geek quotient. But hey, we have the internet and YouTube, right? There's a lot of things we can learn to do. And we could also outsource things. So yes. who knows that uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to see the continued advance of the green energy revolution in yes. our lifetimes. Here, here. So 
What about some Geeks of the Week? Do you want to share yours first? Yes, I'd love to. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a dissertation right now. Um, it's going to turn out to be a very large document uh, that I'm doing completely in Google Docs. And I finally found um, a wonderful um, uh, uh, means of tracking my APA citations. It's called Paperpile. Um, it is a plugin for Google Docs. Um, and there's a free version and there's a premium version almost immediately after starting to use the app. I did spring for the premium version, and I honestly cannot remember what I paid for it, and I'm looking, and I can't find the information, but it was quite reasonable. Um, uh, Ten years ago, I guess 15 years ago, Lord, um, I did a master's degree program online, and I used Noodle Tools, which is, I believe is a tool that's still around to manage my citations. It was wonderful. It allowed my, uh, at that point, um, MLA to be spot on, and I never received doc, uh, docs for those particular pieces and was always complimented on my work site page. Well, the same thing is, is happening now. There's some nuances that I need to learn to make sure that it, it formatted things correctly with multiple references to the same citation. Once I learned it, it's allowed me to easily manage. I'm now up to uh, 75 citations um, in my master document, and I, I can store PDFs of the articles. I can um, have it automatically pull articles when it comes from a formalized database. It's a wonderful, wonderful system for tracking um, citations, and you can utilize um, Trabian, um, MLA, APA, all the major Chicago citation styles. Uh, uh, all the major citation styles are available there, and it plugs just directly into Google Docs. And I think where this is going to become interesting is you mentioned earlier, Wes, that there are people that say that you have to be able to use Microsoft Word, um, you know, to be able to do some of the complex mm -hmm. formatting. Of course, I, I think about that and I laugh because I do remember the day where people were arguing that word processors would never be able to do the proper formatting, which was why we need to have typewriters. Uh, Isn't that funny? That's hilarious. And now we are have moved on quite a bit from that. But, uh, yeah, Paperpile is an excellent Google uh, uh, Docs plugin, and it will really make citations a breeze. Good. I used Bibme, B-I-B-M-E dot, dot com, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, I mean, I tried some different ones, but that was that was my, no, was it Easy Bib? I guess I should know that. Uh, it's been a while. But, you know, it completely, there, there were some, What's the purchase one? Have you looked at that software that you can get that um, was expensive? Oh, the one that, that that's like an plugs app into Word. Yeah, yeah, it plugs it's into Word. Super expensive, it's like BibX or something. Uh, yeah, it's really it's, cool, it's really expensive. Yeah, don't don't more. don't need that. So yeah, I think I think EasyBib maybe is what I did. I'll have to log in and see because it saves them all. But that was it was a lifesaver. So yeah, opening up our minds to the power of technology. It's like it's sort of like the calculator. One of my favorite stories. To tell from my dad, he was uh, on the faculty of the Air Force Academy in 72, 73, and it was on the, the math department's committee that looked at whether they should adopt the calculator or stick with the slide rule, and they decided to stick with the slide rule another year, you know, and uh, that, that kind of thinking about hesitation, it's, you know, we need to be, we need to be thoughtful and not just, you know, just leap in, but when it comes to things like uh, using tools that powerfully help us you know, not spend so much time on the freaking work cited page, right? I mean, that shouldn't be the purpose of research is to, is to get all our periods and dots right. It should be to properly attribute our ideas and then talk about our ideas. That's really, it can be the tail wagging the dog. So yep. I'm glad to know about that. And uh, those are going to be, you know, conversations that we'll, I'm sure, have with our faculty as we're talking about research and papers and, and how those things can work and should work. So my Geek of the Week is... 
a router and it is uh, from a, a company called PFSense, pfsense.org. And uh, I'll give a couple shout outs. Um, Jason has had a, an experience here recently uh, upgrading some home networking hardware that's made a, a positive difference for him as far as um, throughput and just performance. Um, I am now an IT director. So, you know, looking at upgrading our firewall and we researched all these kind of things. And I've been wanting some of the power that I have at work at home. And so the Security Now podcast, which is part of the Twit network, is one of the places I've learned probably the most about networking and network security. Um, they had mentioned this and um, a friend of, exactly the, the younger brother of a high school classmate of mine who is, who, who is a white hat and is a really, you know, incredibly smart person when it comes to web security. Um, I had I'd shared a couple different possibilities with him and he had, he had said this was the one he'd go with. So it's the SG 22, well, 2,220. What is that? I don't know how to say that fast. Anyway, it's a $300 security gateway that you, would put uh, on your on your home network and you know still plug your access point and your cable modem into, but I don't have it yet. Uh, it's on my wish list, and um, you know security is an important thing. And yes. there's a lot of of uh, devices out there that have been sold on the market that that are increasingly vulnerable. And just like you know we're seeing reports all, all the time about hacks, um, part of part of the way that folks are getting information and doing nefarious things is, you know, they're, they're not only getting our devices when we're out and about at coffee shops and things, but they're always probing the networks and trying to see what is vulnerable. So uh, it's a good idea to periodically be upgrading your hardware, not to just use that same Wi-Fi router that you have had in the house for 10 years. Um, you can update your security software. That's probably a very small percentage of people that, you know, flash their firmware on whatever device that they have. Um, but anyway, I'm going to be exploring that and seeing, um, you know, what kinds of things that that offers. And if anybody else has has experiences, because the the, the PF Sense runs an open source, I, I should have said that, uh, runs an open source um, software that 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 works as a firewall. So it runs a customized distribution of free BSD specifically tailored for use as a firewall and router that's managed through a web interface. So that's the geek of the week. Yep, and whenever you mention BSD, you know the geek is getting out. So <laughs> that's a geek time. That's right. That's right. Well, I think we are not afraid to hide our geek here on the EdTech Situation Room. So, okay, we got to do one quick oblique fact. Maybe there's a better name for this corner than than the oblique fact. Um, but I'll I'll share a quick one for. Um, you know, travel, you, you talked about travel. Uh, one of the highlights travel of my life last year. And by the way, the oblique fact is something that is not supposed to be, you know, straight about technology. It's just another fact. In, um, in the summer of 1990, I got a chance to, to travel to, to uh, Peru and to go to Machu Picchu. And that was one of these wow. places taking Spanish that you saw this poster on the wall of, of, you know, a lot of Spanish classrooms and this the Incan village that was, you know, founded on the top of, of some mountains in the Andes. Um, so uh, pretty, pretty cool to be able to visit that. And uh, also just, that's just an amazing mystical place. I've seen some pretty cool documentaries on Netflix since then about how they're still trying to figure out how they worked irrigation and, you know, how, how the Inca did, did uh, everything that they did to put their, put their folks up there. So that is your oblique fact about Wes or whatever story. 
Well, um, I will say that uh, what, one of the other topics that's dominating my life other than my academic work and my day job is that I am a gardener in Montana, and my wife and I, um, this is the first time we've had an opportunity to have a garden in our home for a couple years. We'd lived in a house previously um, for a few years that didn't have an opportunity for gardens. So we had a community garden plot, but um, my tomatoes have finally appeared this week. Uh, they were big, bushy, beautiful plants, and we do work hard at, at, at organic gardening um, and and not cheating um, as my dad sometimes does with the miracle grow although he does have beautiful corn um, the uh, and I and I come from uh, both sides of my family my, my grandfather um, uh, my mom's dad uh, had an acre big garden when my mom who was the oldest of 11 kids was growing up where you know they grew most of the fresh vegetables for their family in that garden until um, he died in his 80s um, you know, he was still out there every day, you know, tending to his garden and his massive size garden. And our tomatoes finally appeared this week. And so, um, I was a little scared that uh, we had overwatered because they were big and bushy, but with no uh, blossoms on there. And two weeks ago, blossoms appeared. And this morning I went out and there was tons of little tiny green tomatoes that would grow big and wonderful. And then at some point, uh, like every gardener experiences, I will have too many tomatoes. So uh, that will, just like my zucchini has, is uh, on the verge of, of being to where I'm going to have to start uh, sneaking them into the neighbor's kitchen uh, because I'll have so much of it. But I love this time of year. I love gardening, and it's a great part of being in Montana. Awesome. So if you've stuck with us for our whole show, you now know what a wonderfully well-rounded person Jason is <laughs> and how he is preparing for the perhaps a post-apocalyptic future <laughs> and we'll be tuning in later to hear him probably talk about the chickens that he's adding to his repertoire and, you know, figuring out how he's going to get rid of all the surplus eggs that are going to come yeah. from the Knifer home. So. Don't, don't say that too loudly because my <laughs> wife would love to get chickens. So yeah. 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 Well, there you go. The self-sufficient, it'll be interesting. It's almost a Luddite thing, but some, sometimes people that are very into technology, you know, end up gravitating to things. And I, I actually have a lot of affinity for thinking about, I don't know, there's a romantic side of that, right? Gardening can really be tough stuff, especially when it comes to bugs and lots of labor and things. Yeah. So true. true. All right. Well, thanks you if you've uh, stuck with us and, um, we will be hopefully coming to you again next week. I'm, are you traveling at all in the next couple of weeks or? Um, no, Same I may place. have a trip for a, a small family trip to go to Portland to see uh, some family there, but I think I'm going to likely stay a couple of car trips in Montana, but I'm going to stay in big sky country. What about you, Wes? Sounds good. I'm just hanging around here too. We got to get ready for, for the start of school here in a couple of weeks. So uh, if anybody has a suggestion for a guest, we might uh, try to pull a guest on here. We haven't done that in, in a, in a while, um, but over and out from Oklahoma and we'll talk, tune in with y'all soon. Great. Have a great night.